Romans 12, somebody asked me this week, what comes after this? I said, Romans 13, they said no. <laughs> you might, if you're new to Calvary, you might not realize, Aaron, I'm really hot in my own ear. Um, you might not under, you might not know that Romans is a subset of a bigger study that we're doing in the life of Paul. We're following the footsteps of Paul through the book of Acts and through his epistles chronologically. And we've been doing it for a couple of years now. After Romans, we go back to Acts because that's where the story picks up. And we follow Paul from Ephesus to Jerusalem to Rome, where we know he's imprisoned. And, and, well, he's under house arrest for the first two years. And while under house arrest, he writes what we call the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, which was probably the cover letter to Colossians, but we've studied Philemon together a couple times, actually. But we have uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians to study. We have the pastoral epistles after that, First and Second Timothy and Titus, and then we're done. And it'll be really interesting to see who's president by then. <laughs> because it, it, it I, I don't think, I don't know what the Lord's going to do. I don't think we're going to wrap up quickly. Feels like about three more years. Feels like the rest of this year is Romans and Acts, and then probably a year in the prison epistles, maybe a year in the pastoral epistles. But I'm guessing. I haven't really sought the Lord on that. Um, it's possible to do it in less time. The last time I taught the prison epistles, I did each of them in one night. One night for Ephesians, one night for Philippians, and so forth. Um, and, and that's doable. On the other hand, the last time my pastor back in New Jersey taught through Ephesians, he took two years. And, and sometimes it felt like we were rushing. So, so you know, the Lord knows. <clears throat> but just some context for those of you joining our Life of Paul study already in progress. This morning, we're in Romans 12. And in Romans 12, Paul has been telling us from the beginning, from the top of the chapter, which is really the, the beginning of this concluding section, Paul's been telling us, think like God. Don't be conformed to this world, he said in verse 2. And we understand why. Who's God of this world? Satan is God of this world. The last thing that we want to do is let a world ruled by Satan dictate how we're going to think and act. So Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Learn to think like God so we can act like God. Don't be conformed to this world. Paul could have said that another way. He could have said, be holy, <clears throat> because that's how Peter expressed it. 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, As he who called you is holy, verse 15, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it's written, Be holy, for I am holy. And it's the same idea, right? Peter expresses it differently than Paul, but it's the same concept. Be holy, for I am holy. And when we think about God's holiness, it takes us to the same place. When we think about God's goodness, his righteousness, his purity, isn't it true that that brings us face to face with the extent to which our world and the things of the world, the world's system and beliefs and traditions and assumptions are all at odds with God and God's holiness. The world is at war with a holy, righteous God. So here's the thing. The more we see that, 
the more we recognize and appreciate that, the, the, the more we comprehend just how far gone this world is, the more we're going to want to correct it, right? Subdue it, defeat it, destroy it, pour out holy wrath against it. So let's do it. Put your Bible away, let's get, let's get to it. Because isn't that thinking like God? To go put down all unrighteousness and all holiness that we see anywhere, everywhere. Isn't, isn't that what Paul's telling us to do? Well, not exactly. Paul started the chapter by saying, don't be conformed, be transformed. Don't think like the world, think like God. And he's been giving us examples, right? Places to start. Our own heart, mostly. And so far, they've made sense. Verse 3, he said, don't think highly of yourself. Serve one another. And we said, okay, well, that, that, that's humility. Yeah, that makes sense. That's, that's what we're called to. Verse 9, he said, abhor evil. Cling to what's good. Well, that's not always easy, but that makes sense, too. God is good. Cling to God who is good. But then we get to verse 17, where we left off last week. And Paul throws us a curveball. He gives us some things that are a little harder to understand and a little harder to figure out, what do I do with this? I'm going to read the rest of the chapter, but I'm going to amplify it just a little bit. So, so just be ready for that. Repay no one evil for evil, but have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it's possible, as much as depends on you, don't be contentious, but... Live peaceably with all men. Beloved, don't avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. Put wrath in its proper place. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, don't take advantage of him, but feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. And that's not as intuitive, is it? That's not as, as straightforward. That's not as easy to, to grasp as what we've looked at so far. But let's, let, let, so let, let's figure out what Paul is saying, because anything that, this challenging has got to be pretty important. So let's dive in, and let's do this. Let's dive in in the middle. Let's start in the middle and work our way out, because verse 19, if we're honest... The whole vengeance part is what we struggle the most with. If we can crack that code, we can probably figure out the rest. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Oh, we hate that. <laughs> right? Even as Christians, we hate that. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go further. I'm going to say especially as Christians. We hate verse 19 with the white-hot passion of a thousand sons. Why? We hate verse 19, and we hate other verses, similar verses that say similar things, because we love vengeance. Vengeance, rev revenge, retribution, payback, pick your own word. We love it. We crave it. Someone wrongs us, someone hurts us. Our souls demand vengeance. Someone hurts us, we want to hurt them back, we want to hurt them now. 
Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. No, God! Vengeance is mine, we say to the Lord. An eye for an eye. You gave us that, God. That's the order of things. That's biblical. Well, I'm going to take that and I'm going to run with it. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. No, vengeance is mine, I say to the Lord. Paul, you're messed up. You got this one wrong. Mostly I like what you have to say. But when we're hurt, taking vengeance is righteous. We're indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, and justice is holy. I'm righteous. I'm the righteous right arm of God. His wrath will not be denied. No, says Paul. Not that. In fact, the opposite of that. We don't get to avenge ourselves. When we're hurt, when we've been wrong, when we've been offended or sinned against, it's not our job to balance the scales. It's not our job to make sure that the person who hurt us hurts like us, suffers like we suffered, loses what we lost. That's God's job, says Paul. But Paul, we're not going to let him off that easy. Paul, you keep telling me to think like God. Don't be conformed, be transformed. Think like God? Here's what I know about God. God is righteous and holy and he loves justice. Ecclesiastes 3.17 God will judge the righteous and the wicked. Nahum 1.2 God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. God is holy and righteous and loves justice. So when I take vengeance, when I get even, I'm thinking like God. You tell me to think like God, that's thinking like God. I'm his holy right arm. Except no, God is telling us. No, we're really not, Paul is reminding us. Part of thinking like God, Paul is emphasizing this morning, part of being transformed is understanding the ministry that God has called us to and recognizing the ministry that God reserves for himself. Vengeance is in the second category. Vengeance, that's his. And we struggle with that. It's hard for us to understand. Hard for us to see how that can be true. Maybe, partly, because we don't want to see. We tell ourselves, well, other things make sense. Don't be like the world with, with, your, with, your, with your personal purity. Don't, don't be like the world, don't think about sex the way the world thinks about sex. Okay, I, that makes sense because we're the bride of Christ. I see how you get there. Don't be like the world with, with your pride. Yeah, I mean, I must decrease that he might increase. I'm good with that. Don't be like the world with gossip because gossip makes you the center of attention, makes you feel important. You know something that other people don't know. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's not about me, it's about others. Don't be like the world with jealousy. Yeah, because if I'm jealous, I'm saying that God isn't running my life well and I, I, my life would be better if, if I was running it instead of God. Yeah, yeah, I can get there. And, and, and on and on down the list. We can make sense of the things that God says, this, not that. It's not always easy, but we see what God is going for. And, and, and so we agree, we assent, we submit, we, we pursue those things, or at least we acknowledge we're supposed to be pursuing those things. Then we get to vengeance. And we flip on the TV, and there's a good guy and there's a bad guy. 
and the good guy or the bad guy is hurting innocent people. And the bad guy is hurting the good guy. And the bad guy is hurting people the good guy cares about. And the bad guy is about to hurt more people, so the good guy takes them out. And we all cheer. Because the bad guy gets what's coming to him. All the wrong he did comes crushing down on him. The law of sowing and reaping catches up with him. Oh, the sweet smell of vengeance. Okay, by the way, Clint Eastwood fans who are, who are texting me right now, yes, I know Clint's shooting bottles in this scene. No vengeance was actually taken in the filming of this. <laughs> Would sort of defeat the point. <laughs> but what if it were? Patrick, are you saying that's wrong? Is it bad to clap and cheer when the villain gets what's coming to him? I mean, isn't that just applauding justice? Doesn't Lady Justice carry a sword? I mean, I think that's a matter of conscience. But let me ask you a question. When we get done clapping and cheering and jumping up and down, the good guy got revenge, the bad guy got what was coming to him. What's our next thought after that? That's what he deserved. That's what was supposed to happen. That's what heroes do. That's what I should do. I should make sure people get what they deserve. Oh, I wish I could. For everyone who hurt me, for everyone who hurt the people that I care about, I wish I could get even. I wish I could hurt them back. If I could figure out a way to do it without getting caught, oh, I would. And God says, yeah, except you need to not. Vengeance is my department. But, but why, God? There's so much evil and injustice in the world. Let me take care of some of it for you. There's so many people causing pain and suffering in the world, adding to the pain and suffering that's already in the world. It shouldn't go unanswered. Let me help you out, God. God says, it won't go unanswered. I promise it won't. Oh, but why can't I deal with it right here and right now? Why does it have to be, you know, one day, someday? Why not right now, here, today, and why not me? And it's, and it's a good question. Given how deep our desire for justice runs, our desire not to just know that it's going to happen kind of abstractly, but to see it happen, to make it happen. There's, I mean, there's, I, I said for service that, that it's almost primal. And someone pointed out, well, God is justice and we're made in the image of God. So it's an imagio deo kind of a thing. But it brings us back to the question, okay, if we're made in the image of God and God is justice, why can't we? Why can't we take vengeance? It deserves a better answer than, well, God said so. Actually, that's not true. We don't deserve anything. We deserve hell. So that's the wrong way of looking at it. But we have a better answer then because God said so. We have a better answer, and knowing that answer, understanding it and internalizing it, is going to help us do what Paul is asking us to do. We always obey better when we understand the why, don't we? Don't be conformed, be transformed. Okay, if, 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 I'm, gonna, if I'm supposed to think, if I'm supposed to act like God, I need to think like God. God, what are you thinking here? Explain it to me. Help me understand why does God tell us to leave vengeance to him? Answer, we'd be really bad at it. And people would get hurt. 
That's, that's, that's the point, that people who hurt us would get hurt. The scales would balance, justice would be done. No, I mean, it's a lovely thought, but it wouldn't work out that way. And deep down, we know that. Because our sin nature gets in the way every time. When we ignore God's instructions and take vengeance anyway, retribution, payback, call it whatever you want, our sin nature gets in the way. Because we have a sin nature, we can't truly know our own motive. We can tell ourselves, oh, my motives are pure. I'm on the side of the angels. We know ourselves well enough to know we can lie to ourselves, right? We can deceive ourselves. We have a sin nature. We also are not omniscient. We don't know everything about everything. And anything more complicated than a peanut butter sandwich has got two sides of the story. There's your side and my side, and then there's what actually happened. Three sides of the story. We can't be certain we understand what happened well enough, thoroughly enough, accurately enough to respond to it perfectly. And on top of all that, we're selfish as all get out, right? So we can't trust our calculation of what the right measure of retribution would be, what the proportionate response would be for what happened to us. And, and all of that is also true, bad enough that it's true for us, it's also true for whoever the person or people are that we would be taking vengeance upon. They might not perceive that, that they're due any justice. And if they are, if they recognize, yeah, I, I, I wronged you, I, I, and, I, and I burned you, and yeah, you're entitled to, 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 to hit me back, they're never going to think that our response is proportionate. Whatever they did to us, they're going to think that what we give back is more than they deserve. And maybe that's their perception, or maybe it's actually true. Because isn't it true when, when we're wrong, well, I'm going to measure this. Okay, this is how much I was wronged, plus interest, plus penalty charges, plus late fees. Okay, I'm going to give you back this much. It's always a little more, right? So, so then they feel compelled to hit back for the difference. And, and the cycle continues. The loss, the pain, the spiral of grief, it's self-perpetuating. Which is why from the beginning God took vengeance out of our hands. What Paul is expressing is not a New Testament concept. It's an ancient truth. Proverbs 20, 22, just to pick a verse, do not say I will recompense evil. Wait for the Lord and he'll save you. He will avenge you. Let him. But wait, 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 wait. An eye for an eye is biblical. You can't, you can't write that on a scripture. You're not Thomas Jefferson. You can't tear out the parts that you don't like. Okay, eye for an eye is in the Bible. In fact, Exodus 21 says more than that. If any harm follows, if anything bad happens, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. But here's the thing. Looking at it in context... That was never intended for individuals. That was not written to you and me seeking guidance for how to administer payback. Those were instructions to Israel for setting up a government. 
And that was telling Israel the punishment should fit the crime, not too severe, not too lenient. And governments get to do that. Governments get to concern themselves with that. Next chapter in Romans is going to talk about that. Government gets to administer justice, which gets messy because governments are made up of people and people have a sin nature. But, but if governments couldn't do it, it wouldn't just be messy. It would be chaotic and wicked. It would be worse than it is now. So God entrusts justice to governments. Individuals, though, were never entrusted with revenge. How do we know? Leviticus 19, written at more or less the same time as Exodus 21. Leviticus 19:18, God says, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. But... It's that same formulation. Not this, but that. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. I'm signing my name. That was God's law given to God's people. Now, did it stop them from taking vengeance? It did not. Because the purpose of the law was to prove that we can't keep the law. And any way we can find to misapply the law, we'll do it. And Israel did it. Which compelled Jesus when he arrived... When Jesus came on the scene, one of his first orders of business was to clarify to people in the Sermon on the Mount that this whole eye-for-an-eye business was not written to individuals. You've heard that it was said, Matthew 5.38, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And that wasn't a new commandment. It seemed revolutionary at the time because no one was doing it. But Jesus was just restating Leviticus 19.18. Love each other. Yet Jesus amplified it a few verses later, Matthew 5.44. He clarified it. He said, hey, love your neighbor, by the way, includes loving your enemies. That was always implicit in God's intention, but Israel hadn't quite wrapped their hearts around that. Jesus amplified what it is to love your neighbor. And, and he expanded it a couple years later, the night before he was executed, John 13, 34, right after Judas leaves, in fact. He says, hey, by the way, love your neighbor is more than Israel. This is a new commandment. That's, that's what Jesus said. This is different. Love, love your neighbor is not just within the borders of Israel. It's for everybody, everywhere. It's especially for people in the church. So, so that part was new. But the through line was there from the beginning, right? Don't be conformed. Be transformed. Don't think like Satan. Think like God. If you want to think like God, don't take revenge. That's not what God has for you. Love. Love. God told Moses that. Jesus told Israel that. Paul's reminding us of that. Don't hate love. Don't stay bitter. Love. Don't take vengeance. Love. Do not do what the world loves. Love the people in the world. No loopholes. No, no asterisks. Asterisks. No special cases. No exceptions. There can't be if you think about it. Rule one, love. Rule two, see rule one. It has to be that way. Because what are we saying if we take vengeance into our own hands after God has told us not to? Isn't, isn't deciding vengeance is my job the same as saying I don't trust God to do his job? 
What's your incentive to take vengeance? Why is it so stinking important to us? Are we worried that God won't get around to it? That he might let crime go unpunished? That he might forget? Or, or, or what he decides is justice doesn't line up with our expectations of justice? That it might not be enough? Man, if we, if we allow ourselves to believe that, get this, family. If, if we allow ourselves to believe that, everything falls apart. Our witness, our gospel, our whole belief system falls apart if we stop believing God. If we can't trust God's justice, justice that, by the way, God says will be more severe and more exacting than anything our puny efforts could hope to accomplish, if we can't trust God's justice, how do we, how do we trust him for anything? How do we trust his grace? How do we trust his forgiveness? And it just clicked, right? Suddenly it all comes together. It all, it all, it all comes into view. The real ultimate deep down reason that you and I, Christians, Christ followers, struggle so much with, with vengeance, battle within ourselves, we know better than anyone. The people who hurt us might escape God's justice. They might. Because God might forgive them. The people who hurt us, they might take shelter under the cross. And the vengeance, the divine retribution for the wickedness that they did might be poured down on Jesus instead. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son that whosoever believes on him will not perish but have everlasting life. Not whosoever is deserving not whosoever isn't wicked, not whosoever didn't hurt us, whosoever. Some people shouldn't qualify for that. Some people shouldn't be eligible for salvation. They don't deserve forgiveness. They deserve to burn in hell and rot in darkness and never have any peace or joy ever. That's true. I'm one of them. <laughs> None of us deserve the love of God. None of us deserve the blood of Christ. None of us, none of us, none of us deserve forgiveness. And God knew if he allowed us to entertain vengeance even a little bit, we'd forget that. We'd start for thinking in terms of deserving and undeserving, fair and unfair, worthy and unworthy. And we forget that the most unjust, unfair thing that ever happened in the history of the world scandalous, I think we called it in worship. The biggest scandal in the universe is that when we were God's enemies, sinning against him, abusing him, ignoring him, wounding him, insulting him, he died for us. Jesus took God's vengeance, his righteous holy wrath upon himself so God could forgive us. And oh, we're glad he did it for us. <laughs> We're, we're psyched. We're washing his blood. We, don't have to, we, will, we won't have to pay for what we did ever. We're white as snow permanently for all eternity, but they shouldn't get off that easily. Who? 
them. Why? Because what they did was worse. So what you're saying is, yeah, I'm better than they are. Oh, glad we cleared that up. Paul, Paul, Paul's whole thing this morning brings us face to face with our pride, doesn't it? And it challenges us. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't think like this world. Think like Jesus, even when it comes to justice, even when it comes to vengeance. Repay no one evil for evil, verse 17. Why? Because Jesus didn't. Not only did he not repay evil for evil, he repaid evil with forgiveness. Repay no one evil for evil. Why? Because that's not thinking like Jesus. If possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Why? Because Jesus did. At the cross, Jesus did all he could to make peace between us and God. He laid down his rights. He laid down his life. As much as depended on him, he did. The rest is up to us. We've got the free will to choose to enter into that forgiveness or reject it. But Jesus did his, his share and then some. He died so that we could live in peace with our enemies. I did everything I could, and Jesus calls us to do the same. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, verse 20. Why? Because when we didn't deserve it, when we were cruel to Jesus, he was kind to us. And his kindness led us to repentance. His willingness to lay down his body so that we could partake of the bread of life, his willingness to have his blood poured out to quench our thirst for the living God, that heaped coals on our heads. That left us burning with conviction. Do not, verse 21, be overcome by evil. That's the world's way. That's how the world thinks. Overcome evil with good, because that's what Jesus did. That's how Jesus thinks. That's what Jesus does. Two options. Think like the world, think like Jesus. Be part of the problem or be part of the solution, if you want to look at it that way. Because we can add our sin to the world's sin. We can take the sin that was sinned against us and we can sin back by taking vengeance and contribute more wicked and wrongdoing to the pile that Jesus is already paying for. Or we can tell people, hey, Jesus paid for that pile. Our crimes, your crimes, all of the crimes. And we can tell them, we can tell them with our words, we can tell them with our actions that Jesus loves them. That's how he thinks about you. Jesus loves you. Jesus went to the cross so you can be forgiven. then what do I do with all this hate? <laughs> Where do I put all this hurt? What do I tell my soul that's crying out for vengeance? I mean, I hear what you're saying and it makes sense and my brain sees it. How do I get my heart to agree? Forgive. I was having a version of this conversation with someone last week. We got more or less to this point. They said, what do I do? I said, forgive. Because, because what, what, is, what does forgiveness have to do with vengeance? Unforgiveness is reserving the right to take vengeance. And that unforgiveness will find expression in, in one of a few ways. 
We're either deferring the vengeance we're going to take on that person, or we're punishing ourselves. We're taking vengeance on ourselves by carrying around the unforgiveness. Or we take that, that unexpressed vengeance that we're still claiming a right to, and, and we inadvertently, accidentally blast other people with it. Because we're just carrying, carrying around this hurt, and it's just looking for a place to find expression. How do, how do we convince our heart to lay down vengeance? We forgive. How do I do that? I wish I had a magic bullet. But like most of what God calls us to do, we got to do the work. <laughs> He'll meet us in it, but he won't do it for us. He'll make us able, but we have to be willing. No magic bullet, but as we wrap up, eight thoughts. Think, and this is stuff we've talked about before. But we're thinking about again. What do I do? How do I, how do I remind myself? How do I convince myself to think like Jesus, to forgive like Jesus? Well, first of all, we can remind ourselves that we're forgiven. Paul in Ephesians says that that's a, that's a key first step, forgiving others even as Jesus forgave you. We, we remind each other a lot that hurting people hurt people, right? But something else that's true, forgiven people forgive people. If we remember that's who we are, how do we remember that? Meditating on the cross helps. Celebrating the Lord's Supper. Pondering the reality of the cross and the glory of the resurrection. Don't leave that out. sharing my testimony, thinking about my testimony, that helps. How changed I am because of the cross, because of forgiveness. How defined I was by guilt and shame because I didn't know forgiveness and I didn't have anywhere to put vengeance. The way I hopped from addiction to addiction to try to numb myself to all of it. Knowing that I'm different because I'm forgiven that, that helps me want it for others. Second thing, second thing that can help with this whole forgiveness process, remember forgiveness and forgetting are not the same. A lot of people crash and burn right here. They say, well, I can't forgive because if I forgive, I'm supposed to forget, and I can't forget, so I'm not going to forgive. Well, that's convenient, but it's not biblical. Forgive and forget don't go together for anyone who's not God. Paul remembered things that happened to him. He cataloged them. He, he would say, this happened in this place, and this happened in this place, and this happened to me, and this happened to me. What he forgot, if you want to call it that, if you want to think about it that way, he forgot the payback that he was entitled to mete out. Forgiving isn't forgetting it happened. And, and it's not pretending that it wasn't wrong, by the way, either. It's not pretending that it wasn't hurtful, harmful, heinous. It's deciding to not seek payback for any of that. It's choosing to renounce justice. It's like writing off a debt. I'm not going to collect this debt. You owed me this much for, for, for what happened. We're even. We're square. I'm writing off the debt. That's what forgiveness is. It happened, and I'm not going to pretend that it didn't happen. But you don't owe me anything. Third thing. 
Third thing that helps me, and, I, and I'm mostly talking about me here. You can, you can cherry pick what, what seems to speak to you here. But it helps me to remember that forgiveness is my calling. Not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a Christ follower. We're here on earth under orders, all of us. Jesus said, preach the gospel, make disciples, evacuate the planet. And we cannot share a gospel of grace with integrity, with authenticity. We can't, we can't do it effectively if we don't believe it ourselves. We can't share a gospel of grace if we're not willing to minister grace ourselves. And, 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 and realizing that unforgiveness touches what we're here to do, that helps me. My flesh wants to make unforgiveness personal. It exists in this little box over here, away from the rest of my life. It's compartmentalized. It doesn't hurt anything or affect anything. It's just, it's just no. My relational pain and what I decide to do with it or not do with it, it doesn't exist on an island. It's not insulated from the rest of my life. It touches every part of my life. The life that Jesus paid for the life that he purchased, the life that, that he asks to be given over to him in worship. Unforgiveness and bitterness quenches the spirit. Unforgiveness and bitterness hinders my ministry. It, it gets in the way of me loving people. Fourth thing, all of that is, is, is very daunting. <laughs> but the fourth thing, remember that we've got the power to forgive. Where God guides, God provides. If he's called us to a ministry, and unforgiveness is, I'm sorry, forgiveness is a ministry. If God has called us to the ministry of forgiveness, he'll provide everything that we need for that ministry. If he's called us to forgive, and he has, he'll provide the grace necessary to do it, and he does. A lot of times I'll talk to people on the subject, they'll say, I'm trying. And my answer is, then you're doing it wrong. Because it's God's ministry. Let him do it. It's not about trying. It's about letting. It's about cooperating. It's about deciding. God, I'm willing. I'm not ready. It's another objection that, 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 that I hear and that, and that I offer. When my flesh rears up, oh, I'm not ready to forgive yet. But the answer that I try to, 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 to respond back to myself with Patrick, what exactly do you not have that you need? The power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. And I'm not trying to make light of, of this subject, by the way. Some of you have had horrific things happen to you. And, I, and, I, and I, I don't probably fully know the weight of that. I get that this can be a process. What I'm offering is perspective. It's not about willpower. If we make it about willpower, then we'll never start because we'll, we know that we're, we're insufficient. But it's not about willpower. It's about willingness to call on his power. Reading about people who have, who have radically forgiven helps me in this. Like the story I tell about the, the Israeli believers, the Messianic believers in Israel who were victims of a suicide bomber. And the survivors in the family paid for the education for the children of the suicide bomber. Corrie Ten Boom and, and everything that happened to her in the German concentration camp and her, her 
struggle with, but ultimately her willing to forgive her captors, her torturers. And, and it's not a, well, if they can do it, I can do it. It's, you know, the same God who did that in them and through them lives in me. Five, recognize that unforgiveness is a sin and renounce it. And that strong language, it helps me. And I'm just talking about me. I've got nearly infinite ability to rationalize. I'm not disobedient. I just haven't obeyed yet. Yet there's another name for that, and it's sin. And again, I'm not trying to be ungracious. I'm saying sometimes I need tough love. Sometimes I need to remind myself or have brothers that love me remind me that unforgiveness is not just an unfinished to-do item in my inbox I haven't gotten to. It's sin I'm not dealing with. Dealing with sin can take time, especially if it's a sin that we've come to rely on, to depend on, if it's, if it's, if it's something we've come to find our identity in. And man, is it easy to let pain define us. I'm not saying it isn't understandable. I'm saying it's not insurmountable. It might take time. You probably will need help from the body of Christ and the gifts that God has given other people, the way the Holy Spirit works through other people. But the way to start is to start. Sometimes we, we say, well, I'm struggling with this sin. And what we really mean is, I'm not struggling with this sin. I'm just letting this sin have its way with me. Sometimes we say, I'm struggling to forgive. And what we really mean is, yeah, I'm deciding to not think about that right now. Sometimes reminding myself what it is. It's sin, which hurts relationships, which hinders worship, which does all the stuff that sin does, gives me an incentive to start. Six. Sixth thing, replace the unforgiveness with love. Drive it out. Put something in its place, the place that unforgiveness has been occupying. Because what unforgiveness does, it grows and it metastasizes, right? Like cancer. Got to put something in its place or it'll come right back. Put love in its place. And that's everything Paul's been talking about, right? Everything our flesh wants to do, do the opposite. Because it's a witness to people watching. Because it's a testimony to the person receiving. And it's also a reminder, it's a demonstration to me that forgiveness is real. And it's a heart check. Is forgiveness still real? Is it still working? Is it still in effect? If I, if I go to love someone and I feel some resistance, if the voice in my head says, why do, you, why, why do you want to? They don't deserve it. Okay, I need to go back and do some work. Prayer is, is a great diagnostic tool. Jesus says, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. What happens when I do? It, it, the prayer might change their heart, but it gives me a pretty good read on my heart, whether, whether the forgiveness has lapsed or whether it's still in effect. If, if, if I start to pray, I'm like, but God, I, I, I pray that a piano will fall from a tall building onto their head. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Pretty good indication bitterness has returned. And, and look, that happens. 
and it's perfectly normal. There are some people, there are a few people, I've been able to forgive once and never look back, but those are the exceptions. Much more often, I need to forgive and forgive again and forgive again and forgive again, and then I get lulled into a complacency and a year or two goes by and I realize, wait, I need to forgive them again. And loving and serving helps me check on the status of my heart. Number seven, Jesus tells me that I get to do that. I get to forgive again and again and again. Peter said, Jesus, how many times do I have to do this forgiveness stuff? Jesus says, you can't count that high. We get to forgive and forgive and forgive. And every time we do, we're thinking like Jesus. Every time we do, we're showing the world Jesus. Every time we do, we're reminding ourselves Jesus. And hopefully every time we do, we're rejoicing. There's the last one. Rejoicing that we get to. Hurt people hurt people? Yeah, but forgiven people get to forgive people. Get to be like Jesus. Get to show the world Jesus. Forgiven people forgive people. And every time we do, we're worshiping and rejoicing that we're just a little bit more like our king than we were the day before. Jesus, we... We look around the world and we see so much pain. There is so much hurt and loss and suffering and cruelty and injustice. But our mission is clear. Our mission is to be light and to be love and to carry grace in the world and to trust you with justice. Oh, it's hard, God. (laughs) But we can do all things that we're called to, all things that you've prepared for us through Christ who strengthens us. The Spirit of the living God dwells in us. And so things that are humanly impossible, things that our flesh is revolted by, things that the world is disgusted by. That's where you call us to be because that's where you're waiting. That's where your grace will be abounding. Teach us to walk in obedience and glorify your name.